spirit of wisdom and revelation, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see your revealed truth. Then give us wisdom to understand and the strength to apply it in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our New Testament reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. We have reliable first-person accounts from his friend of a time when C.S. Lewis was walking down a street in Cambridge with a friend of his and a homeless guy, a beggar, came up and asked him for money and the friend just kept walking by, it didn't stop, and, but he watched, turned around and watched as C.S. Lewis stopped, talked to the man, opened up his wallet and pulled out every last wad of cash he had and gave it to this beggar. And uh, a minute or two later, as they resumed their, their walk down the street, the friend turned to Lewis and said, you know, he's probably going to spend all of that on beer. And C.S. Lewis said, well, that's what I was going to spend it on. (laughs) There's a world we all want where you can be a beggar and be loved. There's a world we all want that is liberated from loneliness, a world that, that doesn't have fear, that doesn't have hatred, that doesn't have violence or racism or injustice, where poor people are not scorned or blamed or distrusted, a world that, that, that the Bible talks about. And as we prepare to look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, we are looking into a vision for a world we all long for. It's hardwired into our souls because what we're looking at is the world that was lost when our first parents turned their back on God and were expelled from the garden. It's a world that God hoped to recreate within his people Israel and that he still longs to recreate within his people the church. The way David Bisgrove says it is, he says, here in Deuteronomy, we see the blueprint for that world, a world without hatred, racism, and violence, you shall not murder. A world without broken relationships, honor your father and mother, do not commit adultery. A world without greed or oppression or slavery, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. Isn't that a world we all want? You who have children, is that not the world you want them to grow up into? A community of flourishing relationships, an interwoven community that everyone gets to enjoy, where everyone has a seat at the table, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's the world that is promised in Deuteronomy, in the law given to Moses. So how do we get there? 
How do we recreate that world of shalom, of biblical peace and flourishing, that world uh, within this church, within our city? Uh, We see today, in, in the passage we're getting ready to look at, one particular quality that surpasses all others in terms of creating that world that we long for. Uh, One distinctive mark of God's presence. We see one thing without which God's kingdom is not evident. Without which a pastor is not really a pastor. Without which your Christian testimony is not really a Christian testimony. One thing that if you're missing out on, you're missing out on God's purpose in history. It's something God intends. We call it compassion on our fellow sinners. On the weak on the poor, on the broken, on the bruised, on the damaged. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, the first 15 verses. It's a long reading. Follow along with me. This is the word of God. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he's made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, that would be someone outside the church, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if you only fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and he will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If there's a poor man among you, Among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he, he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Well, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in everything you put your hand to, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and the needy in your land. Fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman sells himself to you and serves you six years. In the seventh year, you must let him go free. And when you release him, don't send him away empty handed. Supply him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why. I give you this command today. As God invites us as people 
back into this world that ought to be, into this shalom. He calls us to recreate this world in the church. It's something he will do, and central to that is a life of compassion toward those in need. We're going to talk about poverty in a few weeks. This week, I want to focus on the psychology of the passage, as it's all about the compassion of God. What does compassion look like? What blocks it? And finally, what can develop it? What, firstly, does compassion look like? It looks like an openness to the needy. It's a posture of, in verse 7 and 8, open-handedness. If there's a poor man among your brothers, he says, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. To be open-handed is to hold on to all that you have very, very, very lightly so that others can reach out and take it from your hand. It means your food. It means your home, your money, your schedule. Learn to live your life not rigidly stuck to a schedule and commitments, but loosely holding all of your possessions, loosely holding even your willingness to enter into relationships to hold all those things lightly with an open hand. Compassion is a posture. It's Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. It's an openness to human need. Compassion, it's not concerned to assign blame to the poor or to others doesn't have an attack mode. Compassion doesn't put the weak and needy and broken and suffering and afflicted in in its theological crosshairs. Compassion comes in a warm embrace that offers empathy and support and presence and non-judgment, a non-anxious presence of warmth that offers an embrace. At our denomination's General Assembly this year, I heard Joe Novenson of of Lookout Mountain Prez in Chattanooga talk about an experience he had when he was a fairly young believer and fairly young in his theological training. He had become uh, convicted of the Reformed faith that Presbyterian churches hold to, that all of salvation is God's grace, that even your willingness to believe is the work of God's grace in you, bringing you to faith so that God gets the glory for everything. Salvation is not a joint venture between man and God. It is all God, all grace, all his work, all his glory. And, and, and as Joe began just lapping this up, this pure milk of the word of God, this gospel of grace, he was filled with such joy. And then he enrolled at seminary, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And there he encountered two instances that absolutely shook his foundations. The first was that one of the professors there had been brought up on accusations of, of heresy or that his doctrine was not quite right, his, his interpretation of certain passages was called into question. And, and this professor, whom he loved, uh, he watched as he stood before the rest of the faculty. And the rest of the faculty members absolutely ripped him to shreds with their words, tearing apart his every word, you know, 
speaking over top, accusing him. And he didn't understand because these were the same professors from which he was learning these rich doctrines of the grace of God in Christ. And he couldn't reconcile that with the vitriol and the hostility and the anger and the hate that he was seeing within them as they turned on their colleague. The second instance was later that night down the street in a Howard Johnson's as he sat waiting for his food, he saw across the restaurant this same professor who had just been torn to pieces by his colleagues with Ed Clowney, the president of Westminster Seminary. And the man was weeping uncontrollably. And Joe, Novin, uh, and Joe says that Ed Clowney, the president, was holding him up by his shoulders, weeping with him and whispering words to him. Joe says this, he says, I don't know what words were being spoken, but of those two instances, I know which one looked like my master. Friends, it's compassion. The driving issue of compassion is, is the other person's need because God's eyes first... It, His eyes are first of all upon the suffering of those in need. You see it throughout the Bible. James 5, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Isaiah 49, the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. We see the same thing in Jesus, who in Matthew 9 saw the crowds and it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek term there for compassion is a word not even used in classical Greek. We see it first here. It it says something was moving inside of him. He was moved by compassion. Literally, Jesus saw the weak and the helpless with their religiously abusive, spiritually abusive pastors. And he says he was moved in his inward parts. It's a passive verb. The Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield in the early 20th century in his, in his treatise on the emotional life of our Lord says, the emotion most frequently attributed to the Lord Jesus is his compassion towards sinners. It's a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is hurting in their pain, in their misfortune. Compassion is a sympathetic pity a concern for their sufferings and misfortunes. It involves feelings of pity and sympathy and empathy and fellow feeling, care, concern, sensitivity, warmth, love, tenderness, mercy, kindness, because it's all about the other person's need. Friends, how often do we experience in a conversation or a community group where a brother or sister unloads or opens up about a truly awful experience where they have been troubled or dishonored or abused or shamed or traumatized or maligned or mischaracterized or wounded or wronged and then one after another around the group everybody starts giving them advice friends it's the opposite of compassion don't expect Explain to them why they shouldn't feel the way they feel. Don't ask them questions that put them on the defense or suggest that you don't believe them. Compassion is drawn to the woundedness without passing judgment. It steps into that place of deepest hurt and it says, I believe you and I am so sorry and I am here with you and you are not alone in this. Stepping into another's woundedness 
I was at a team leader meeting for the upcoming conference yesterday, and uh, and Stephen, I was just there because I'm a pastor here, but uh, Stephen was explaining about name tags for this conference. And uh, he said, some people have one colored name tag, which basically means you can take photos of me, you can put my name out there in like social media. I don't care that people know that I'm at this conference. And then other people would have uh, a yellow name tag, which says, just use some caution. You know, find out, hey, you know, ask before you take the photo. Ask before you, you know, post their name on Facebook. And then he explained that some people, because of their privacy needs, will have white name tags. And a white name tag means they are at maximum risk and they need maximum protection. And as I drove to Schnooks after leaving that meeting, I was processing what I had just heard. And I was weeping as I pulled into my parking spot and I just had to turn off the car and sit there for a while before I was ready to go in because I was thinking of my sister in Christ who is so unsafe in her church, so unsafe in her family, who is so threatened in her workplace that she would have to have maximum protection. No photograph. Nobody can even know that she's in St. Louis. Friends, it was breaking my heart. No sister should have to have a white name badge. And yet the fact that she would trust us, us, to protect her, that she would feel safe being exposed in this place, within this church building, within these four walls, told me a great deal about the compassion of God's people because we will protect her. Friends, that is, when you see that, You're looking at the church that Jesus died to create. So what is it that blocks compassion in us? What blocks compassion in us specifically are two things in this passage. The passage zeroes in on two things. It zeroes in on two heart issues because it's all about the psychology of why we don't show compassion to those who are in need. In this case, the poor person. Two things. Fear and a false sense of superiority. It's the fear, the thoughts of our hearts that tend towards self-protection. We see it in verse 9. We tend to count the cost of showing compassion. We say, oh, I don't want to end up, you know, loaning a bunch of money to a family in need in year 6 when in year 7 all the debts get canceled. And God says, do not have this wicked thought. Don't let it even factor in. Don't count the cost of compassion to your brother or sister in need. He says, you know, don't, don't send them away. Uh, uh, or or the, the, the fear is what would tempt you not to send away your servant in year seven, even though God commands it. That's verse 14. Your fear would, would, would have you send them away empty-handed, he says. But no, I want you to send them away supplied liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. Let them go, and when you let them go, give them wealth so that they can invest and build their own career independent of you. 
And yet the fear, the fear of the productivity you're going to lose, the fear of the business that you won't get in the future, you know, these are supplies that you and your family will not be able to enjoy. It's a future that you're putting at risk by showing compassion, and that's going to play on your fears. Why not rather just hold back some chips for myself? How do I know that God's going to provide for me in the future? How do I know that my business will be okay? If I give generously, if I show compassion, if I open up, if I take people into my home, how do I know that I will be okay? Friends, you can hear the fear. God's zeroing in on the fear. It's the fear that makes you tight-fisted in your sin because of your uncertainty about the future. Two things are blocking compassion. They're addressed here. Fear is going to block your compassion and a false sense of superiority. It's why God points the Israelites back to their own past and says in verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You are no different. Your brokenness is no different. Your neediness is no different. You were in bondage, and I came and rescued you. I've spent way too many hours over the last six weeks or so answering questions and addressing concerns about the Revoice Conference that we're hosting. And some of the people who will be coming to this conference have, um, have come from, you know, LGBT background, men and women who have experienced the call of Christ on their life. And some of them have left partners that they deeply loved because they want to trust Jesus and they believe he's calling them to that. Uh, others believe that God has called them to live permanently decoupled in celibacy or singleness, faithful to Christ with their sexuality. Can you imagine what it's like if you're an 18-year-old kid and you're realizing that God might call you to be single the rest of your life? It's like when, you, when you're 60 years old and you realize you've never married, that, that pain is slowly spread out over, over 40 years. But when you're 18, it's all hitting you all at once. These are people who need incredible compassion, incredible support, and yet some of you would become physically ill if I showed you some of the emails and letters the church has received from Christians. Some of them have actually been very respectful, just from sister churches or concerned people who aren't sure what we're doing, and they, this is raising red flags, and they need an explanation, and they want to voice their concern. And some of them have been wonderfully supportive and loving in their disagreement, but some of them have been downright ugly. We opened one. It said, so has the entire Presbyterian Church in America begun worshiping Satan, or is that just memorial? The language being used in some of these letters about effeminates and sodomites and perverts, it makes you question who would send that to a church. One email was just a single word, Satan. It was all I could do not to hit reply with a photo of the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Remember, these messages are not because we've changed our belief about sexuality. The Bible hasn't changed. We haven't. It's because we're hosting hundreds of Christians who have come from that background at great personal cost because they believe in Jesus. What do I hear in many, not all, but many of the letters and emails and voicemails and blog posts and podcasts? I, I hear two things, and then there's a third thing that I don't hear. What I hear is a lot of fear. Fear that these believers will somehow infect the church with their gayness. Fear of slippery slopes. Fear of the future. Fear that someone somewhere might get confused. Fear, I can't remember a time when there's more anxiety over a conference that has not yet happened. Fear, anxiety, more fear. I hear so much fear, but I hear a second thing. 
And so much of it I hear a false sense of superiority. You know, how is their sin any different from your sin? Folks gathering in St. Louis know they're sinners. They feel the shame of it. They're doing battle with their inner demons in a way that you or I might not even be doing. We're not even keeping up with them. And they need our spiritual and emotional support. Many of them know what it's like to be made fun of. Even within their churches, especially in their churches, to be pointed at, to be bullied in youth group, threatened, to be called names. They know what it's like to be constantly on their guard, to never feel safe, to be constantly in the theological crosshairs of evangelical bloggers, every single one of which seems to be creating a new anthropology right now just to justify long-held convictions that aren't in the Bible. They know what it's like to be excluded from ministries because of things over which they have no control and they're shepherding faithfully before Christ. People think their sin is somehow worse than everyone else's, even though they are precisely the ones who are doing battle. Can you hear the presumption of superiority when people say, how can you let that kind of sinner come to Jesus in your church? I've read posts by elders in our denomination misquoting Romans 1 to call into question whether such believers who struggle with same-sex attraction can even be saved because the Bible says God handed them over to it. And I've had to point out to them very graciously, usually writing my reply and then scratching it and rewriting it and then scratching it and rewriting on about the 12th one I finally posted to Facebook but I've had to point out to them that Romans 1 says three kinds of sinners have been handed over to the judgment of God homosexual sinners are the second one the first one if you look at Romans 1 is that God has handed over heterosexual sinners to the lusts of their minds the lusts of their hearts that's your browser history That's the browser history of your brain if you had one. You are no different. And the third of the three is that God handed them over to not just the impure lust of their heart, but he handed them over to what he calls a depraved mind, which he then illustrates as being one who sows strife or who gossips, meaning talking about other people's sins and how bad they are. And he lists slander misrepresenting people in your podcasts, in your Facebook posts, misrepresenting them in your blogs, misrepresenting them in your articles. I said, don't you understand? Paul is listing a trifecta of God's judgment. Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, and the sins of religious people who love their slander, and they love their gossip, And they love judging other people because the last of the sins listed of 22 in that third category is a failure to have mercy and compassion on your fellow sinner. Paul sums it up in chapter 3. He says, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are saved freely through the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. I said I keep hearing two things. I hear the fear, slippery slope, it's going to, this might open up the door to all sorts of stuff. And I hear the superiority as if their sin's somehow better than yours, or worse than yours. I said there was one thing that I'm not hear, And what I'm not hearing in this particular group of letters and posts and emails and phone messages, what I'm not hearing is compassion not hearing what Deuteronomy says 
is the most important thing if the church is to re-enter into the world that God intended from the beginning. Compassion for sisters and brothers who might be fighting a very lonely struggle. Fear and superiority block off compassion and prevent us from entering into the life which God calls. And so God says, don't worry about giving that loan in year six, even though it's going to hit you in loan seven. He says, don't let that stop you because you were slaves in Egypt. So how do we get back there? How can we actually develop a heart of compassion? Friends, the gospel addresses the fear and it addresses the superiority. It addresses the fear by securing us a future. God says in verse 6, For the Lord, your God, will bless you as he has promised. It's a conditional promise, what's called future grace. When God says, humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and I will lift you up, he is saying, if you do this, trust me, I will give you grace in the future in another way. It's like Jesus when he says, take the lowest seat at the table because the master is going to be the one to move you up. Here the promise is, if you trust me in this, God is saying, if you believe me, if you give liberally to the poor, if you open your heart to those who are needy, if you open your church to those who are broken, short term, you might lose a few members. Short term, you might lose your budget. Short term, you might struggle to get by. But long term, God is saying, I will bless you as I have promised. It's future grace. He's speaking to us as a people, individually and corporately, saying, I'm going to take care of you. I promise you great blessings. Trust me. Create this counterculture of compassion in St. Louis. As long as you grasp onto the things of this life and wallow in your fears and insecurities, you're going to be tight and ugly toward those who are in need. But Lift up your eyes to me. Lift up your hearts and see my grace and trust my promise. I am giving you grace now, and I will give you grace in the future. You do not know what the future holds, friends, but if you are a Christian, you know who holds the future. His name is Jesus. He's the Lord of earth and heaven, and he promises if you risk compassion, face your fears, I will bless you such as you could never before imagine. He addresses the fear and he addresses the superiority. Remember that you were slaves and the Lord your God redeemed you. Notice what he's saying here. He's pointing to the grace of the past and the present. He's saying you were so far gone. You were so lost. You were in bondage without hope and the only God himself could come to your rescue. Friends, it knocks the wind out of the sails of your legalistic self-righteousness because once you sign up and say, I am so evil that Jesus had to die for me, then you are ceding any moral high ground from which to judge the weak, the needy, the poor, the dispossessed, the alien, the refugee among you. Because you're saying, I am the same, and yet the Lord came and redeemed me. see this story develop in history. We see Jesus come to bring the fullness of this redemption, setting us free from our bondage to our own sins so that we might enter into his kingdom, the kingdom of his father, the kingdom of his spirit as followers of Jesus. So loved that Jesus chose to die for me. It's the kind of God we see in the Bible. Isaiah 30, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He will rise up to show you compassion. 
Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on you who fear him. 2 Corinthians 1, he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. He's the God who cancels debts. Did you see it in verse 1 and 2? The implications are astounding in light of the incarnation of Christ. He says you must cancel debts. Every creditor, every seven years, I want you to cancel all the debts because he is your brother, your fellow Israelite, your fellow believer. He's in your family. And the year of the Lord's canceling debts has been proclaimed. This was the law of God for over a thousand years of the history of our people to train us in a seven-year cycle about what kind of God we have. We have a God who is all about canceling debts. We have a God of compassion. And when God the Son became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, I want you to hear this. When God the Son became your brother in Christ, when God the Son became your family, when you were adopted into his family, as soon as Jesus became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, God the Son had set in motion the most comprehensive redemption the cosmos could ever know. For at that moment, God the Son became your brother. And when Jesus became your brother, he obligated himself, therefore, to cancel your debts and hold your sins against you no more. That is the kind of God we have. A God who comes and puts himself under law so that under the law he might free you by being a brother to you because the year of canceling debts has come friends, that has a price. There's always a price to be paid when you forgive someone their debt. Someone drives their car through your front window and you say, I'm sorry, don't worry about it, I forgive you. Now, at that point, who is going to pay the price of repairing your front window? The price doesn't go away. The debt doesn't go away. The debt transfers from them to you. And when Jesus went to the cross, that's what he was doing. He was paying the price of forgiving you your sins. He was paying the debt that he had transferred from all of us to him on the cross. And he paid it in full, and he did it because he is your brother if you believe in him. Jesus, the man of canceling debt. I want, you to, I want to tell you about Paco. Paco Amodar. We've got a photo. Paco was born in Mexico City, but today he's a pastor in Chicago on the west side, Little Village. He lives in a neighborhood rife with gang violence. He tells the following story about being invited to lead a prayer vigil for a young gang member who had been gunned down by a rival gang. He writes, When I arrived at the prayer vigil, a large crowd of young people many known gang members had already gathered around the sidewalk where I would be praying. And I wondered, what should I do? What should I say? I felt fearful. I felt inadequate. These were not kids who made C's and D's in high school. These were not kids who got in-school suspensions for gum chewing. 
Some of these kids were murderers. Life to them was cheap, and every one of them was carrying a weapon. Some of them might rather shoot you than look at you. It was a rough, rough crowd. This was not a safe place. You can almost imagine the thoughts going through his mind. Am I going to make it safely home to my family today? What if I say the wrong thing and somebody takes offense? What if a rival gang comes with, with their hearts bent on revenge and shoots up this place? But he says, I also knew that they had gathered for this prayer vigil, and so amid my fears, I prayed silently, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? He says, as I looked over the crowd, I realized that most of these scary-looking gang members were really just kids, mostly in their mid-teens, some in their late teens, some in their 20s. I was old enough to be their father. And they had surely been told repeatedly by authority figures how wrong their actions were and how foolish gang activity is. But as I looked at these hurting teenagers, I wondered, what would Jesus say to these young people? And so I asked permission to speak from my heart. And then I said, since most of you are half my age, I'm the age of your dads. Would you allow me to address you on behalf of your fathers? I know you've heard plenty of times that this back-and-forth violence in our neighborhood is complete nonsense. You've been told how destructive gang behavior is. But today, on behalf of your dads, I want to say to you what should have been said to you a long time ago. My son, my daughter, would you forgive me for not being there for you when you were little? Will you forgive me for not being there when you took your first steps? Will you forgive me for not being there to play catch with you when you were young? Will you forgive me for leaving you when you most needed my presence? He says, as the words poured from my lips, I couldn't control myself. Tears ran freely down my cheeks. And to my surprise, many of them started to weep with me. Something was happening in that moment, and following that gathering, all of these gang members started to trust me, even though I had no credibility in their world. I hadn't shared their life, but I had shared something of their pain. Friends, I want you to imagine a St. Louis where gang members in North City feel like Christians are the people who share their pain. Imagine a church as a community so loved by God and so shaped by our own experience of bondage and redemption, of slavery and freedom through Christ, that we are the first people to offer empathy and the very last to offer judgment. That we might begin to weave back together within the church the frayed ends of the world God intended to create. See, in Paco, we see a man who came from far, far away a man who entered into someone's world and took personal responsibility for all that was wrong in their world. And he shouldered it. He shouldered it so that a bunch of teenage gang members might experience something that not a one of them had ever experienced, so that they might experience the compassion of a father. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He came a long way, and he entered your world filled with brokenness and sin 
and shame and sorrow. And he entered that world and took personal responsibility for everything that was wrong about it. He shouldered that responsibility on the cross so that a bunch of immature rebels like us might experience something that we had never experienced, the compassion of God, our Father. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your Son, Jesus. And we receive him as the man of compassion who died that we might know your compassion and might manifest it in our lives. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table that you would preach good news to us who are poor. It's in the name of Christ who we bless and praise with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.